We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Wednesday, September 5th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we are going to talk to Lynn Louder via the American Legion. They set up an interview with Lynn Louder, who's got an interesting new initiative that's working to get veterans into business as business owners. But there's a little bit of a twist to this one. The businesses that those veterans would run are businesses that are already established, whose owners are looking to retire and want to sell their businesses to veterans. We're going to talk to Lynn about that program coming up here in just a little bit. Also today, Dr. Ryan Vega from the VA is going to talk to us about their innovation experience that they had last week. The VA has been at the front of medical innovation for decades, and they're not resting on their laurels. Oh, no, my friends. The VA is continuing to try and break new ground when it comes to caring for veterans and then seeing if some of those things might work for the general population as well. So a nice big Wednesday show. Feels like a Tuesday, even though it's already Wednesday and Jake and I are here. First, to go over the news and events and such. Jake, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you? I'm doing all right. I had another one of those days where I'm sitting in traffic and then I see a helicopter hovering over. Oh, above. Lord, again? Yeah, I left. I, you know, if I were you, I would start believing the conspiracies that the black helicopters are, are following me. It, and the earth is flat. Yeah, that too. That too. That's making the traffic take longer. I left early today and got here at the normal time. I thought I'd get here early because I have a lot of work to do for the CBS Eye on Veterans show today and ended up uh, taking just as every time I leave early, I swear to God, I see those helicopters hovering above the Baltimore-Washington Parkway or 95 or whichever way I choose to get into work. But other than that... Uh, You know, my son's first day of school yesterday. Congratulations, Decker. Those who tuned in on Friday got to hear him uh, in the background in studio a little (laughs) bit. He had his first day of kindergarten yesterday, rode the bus to school, had a great day at school from what we understand. So things looking good for him and things are looking interesting around the world. One of the big pieces of news yesterday that we didn't really talk about was the uh, release of a new book by Bob Woodward. Of course, Woodward and Bernstein, Watergate, that's where you know him from. Washington Post reporter, essentially, in this new book on the president, uh, it says that his staff says a lot of very unkind things about him and has these direct quotes that are very dramatic and very uh, basically incriminating almost, I would say. Not incriminating because that that denotes a crime, but just showing that uh, very damning quotes. the people who dislike the president that all of their worst fears are true. And I believe the book is called Fear by Bob Woodward. <laughs> uh, although, now we've had two veterans who are included in there pushing back very hard against that book and calling it fiction. In fact, Secretary of Defense Mattis, who in there is uh, basically said to have uh, ignored the president's orders to assassinate Bashar al-Assad, the uh Uh, dictator over there in Syria, says, yeah, that didn't happen. Another thing where they said he allegedly said Trump, quote, acted like and had the understanding of a fifth or sixth grader. Here's what 
General Mattis had to say about that in a statement. The contemptuous words about the president attributed to me in Woodward's book were never uttered by me or in my presence. While I generally enjoy reading fiction, this is a uniquely Washington brand of literature and his anonymous sources do not lend credibility. Ouch. There you go. John Kelly also having said uh, to have called the president an idiot and things like that. General Kelly saying, yeah, never said that. That's the problem with anonymous sources. You can have anyone and there can be people who are highly placed who don't particularly care for the president who will try to make him look as bad as they can and use people like Mattis and Kelly to push that narrative forward. Is it true? Is it not true? It's hard to say when they're anonymous sources and you can't ask them directly and you're not having someone put their name on it, as it were. Uh, you have these interesting things come up. But two veterans highly placed in the administration, uh, two retired Marines, John Kelly and uh, Secretary Mattis, Secretary of Defense, uh, is it, it's not surprising to me. And when I read the book, I mean, if you say that someone has the understanding of a fifth or sixth grader, again, whether you like him or not, this is someone who has run multiple companies, run some of them very well, run some of them maybe not so well, <laughs> done a lot of good business deals, and has gotten some things done as president that a fifth or sixth grader probably wouldn't have the capacity to do. So that kind of threw up a red flag for me right away. I mean, sure, it could be hyperbole that Mattis was saying, but he's not someone that's really known to speak in hyperbolic terms. The quote from Kelly in his statement, the idea I ever called the president an idiot is not true. He called the passage another pathetic attempt to smear people close to President Trump and distract from the administration's many successes. So uh, it's one of those interesting things. And Washington, D.C. is an interesting place. And, you know, for all of uh, Mr. Woodward's accomplishments, there have been a lot of questions about things that he's written uh, at times. And there's been accusations of embellishment or creation. According to Mattis and Kelly in this book, it's a whole bunch of fiction. As Mattis said, I like reading fiction, but not this one. Well, that's the catch-22 is you can tell that if you can get a quote from someone like someone well-respected like General Mattis or Secretary Mattis or General Kelly, they, you think it lends credence to the book that, wow, if these important people that are well-respected are saying these things, it must be true. But on the flip side of that is once these people who, again, are well-respected by many people in the country come out and say, yeah, no, that's complete bullcrap, then it you know, makes your book look bad. It does. And, uh, you know, I don't know. How many books have we had about the president that are like have four all or five all sorts now? Of claims? There was that Michael Steele book, which a large portion of it has been shown to be just fantasy, essentially, I would say. This one, uh, I haven't read it, so I can't say, but when it comes to the statements by these two former Marines, these two Marines, retired Marines, uh, it's, uh, it's looking like they're saying, nope, nothing true to that. Here's another story, Jake, that we have talked about a little bit, and here's some more reporting on it. Do you remember the story we talked about last week of the Marine, homeless Marine, gave his last $20 to a woman who had run out of gas to help fill her car with gas. They did a GoFundMe type of campaign, raising over $400,000 for him. Well, the lawyer for that man said last week, hey, he's only gotten 75000 of that 400000 Where's the rest of the money? These people are going on crazy vacations, and they're clearly spending the money on themselves. Don't have any proof of that other than, hey, they went on vacations. Could they afford those vacations? We don't know. We do know that they're in New Jersey. We do know that the campaign raised over $400,000. Now the attorney for Johnny Bobbitt, that Marine, his attorney's name is Chris Fallon, says he has learned to his surprise that the cash was all gone after having a conversation 
with uh, the lawyers for Kate McClure and Mark D'Amico. He says he's shocked by this, saying that they raised the money to help Johnny Bobbitt get money for food. $400,000 worth of food would last you for a long time. The thing we brought up yesterday, or last week, I should say, when the original uh, story broke on this is that his lawyer said he had been given $75,000 but was still living on the streets. Why are you still living on the streets if you were given $75,000? Yeah, I mean, I could, I mean, $75,000, that's a okay apartment. That's food for a year. That's, I mean, especially if you take public transportation and don't buy a big car or something, that yeah. will last you a while. That's a decent salary, even yeah. in Philadelphia. $75,000 is enough for uh, to, to have a family live on for a year. Not and one person. Why is he still living on the streets if he was given seventy five thousand dollars? So there's a lot of different conflicting stories in this that I just don't understand. McClure and D'Amico have not commented on it, nor have their lawyers. They said that they were wary of giving him the large sum, the four hundred thousand dollars, because of the fear he will buy drugs. Apparently, he has had some problems that led to him being out on the streets, uh, as many people who end up homeless do have issues, whether it's mental health issues, substance abuse issues, or anything like that. Um, it's it it's it's just it's a it's a quandary for you because GoFundMe has always been a red flag to me. People are raising this money. How do you know it's going where it's going? We've seen many times in the past, as we said last week. Jake, you're big involved into the video game industry, and you keep an eye on that. Video game developers, independent video game developers, and even big studios have started these GoFundMe campaigns in the past with uh, claims that they were going to produce this amazing game and then the game never comes out. Well, where'd the money go that the people went in? Did it go into developing the game and then it failed? Maybe. Did people that got the money claimed? Did they claim that it went to the game and that it failed and just spent the money however they wanted to? Maybe. It's hard to tell exactly where it goes. Um, This is... An interesting thing. Now, the family said the family, the uh, the man and woman, McLaurin D'Amico, say, admit to spending five hundred dollars of the GoFundMe money to gamble because he didn't have his casino card one night, but says that he repaid that with the money that he won. Admitting that you use five hundred dollars, not as bad as admitting that you use four hundred thousand of the dollars. But there's a big gap between the two. I just don't know. I don't know. Now, the guy, uh, D'Amico, says that Bobbitt was given $25,000 that they gave him in December in less than two weeks and spent it on drugs, paying legal bills, and sending money to his family. It's hard to know who to believe. The couple says they bought Bobbitt a camper with some of the funds, parked it on land that the guy's uh, McClure's, uh, Kate McClure is her name, parked it on land that her family owns in Florence, New Jersey, but... He became homeless again after D'Amico told him in June that he had to leave the property. During an appearance Monday on Megyn Kelly Today, D'Amico and Kelly said that they had given, uh, said that there was well over $150,000 left in the donations, and they basically said that they had given him the $250,000 in money, goods, and services. So, like, the camper would be a significant chunk of change, I would imagine, unless it was a really cheap one. Fallon said Bobbitt had received about $75,000 cash, including the camper and a 1999 Ford Ranger. This is very interesting. A judge has ordered the couple to transfer the money into an escrow account by Friday, hire an accountant to review financial records within 10 days. Really just a fascinating story. The Associated Press is reporting on it. It's gotten international attention. It's been reported overseas as well. I just don't know uh, exactly who to believe. It may be somewhere in between. They may have spent... Some of the money, it doesn't sound like they spent $400,000. It sounds like they did 
do some things to try and get him back on his feet. But as can be the problem with those with mental health and substance abuse issues, you know, if, you, if you're doing the right thing and you want to put someone in a camper on your property and get them off the streets, and then that person starts doing crazy things and being a problem. You know, what do you do in that situation? You're right. And as far as spending all the money, I mean, unless you're buying things like a house or something other hugely exorbitant thing, you have to try to spend $400,000. Yeah. And, they, and they've said that they've gone on vacations to Vegas, New Year's in Vegas. Well, a lot of people do that. I know people who don't make a lot of money who go to Vegas every New Year's or every Christmas or whatever. It's hard to say exactly what's happening here. Uh, you want to see it work out well for everybody involved. It was a heartwarming story when it first came out that the guy gave the $20. The fact that he gave the $20 doesn't make him a perfect person, so it doesn't mean that you know everything that he's saying is true and everything that he's done has been great. If they're saying they gave him $25,000 in December and he spent it all on drugs, that's one way to go through money real quick. Yeah, That's a way that you can certainly do it. And it would seem to validate uh, their claims that, you know, he was back on the streets even after getting $75,000. How? Hey, drugs can do it. Mental health issues can do it. Uh, does he have a bank account to keep that money? If not, if you're walking around with $75,000 on the streets and other people out there on the streets know that $400,000 was raised in your name, that puts a big old target on your back. Yep. So it, it's difficult to say. We're just going to have to keep an eye on it. I mean, everything that we're saying is supposition. Hey, did he? Did, was he given $75,000? Maybe. We don't know. We don't know. They say that there's a lot of that money still left, although his lawyer now saying that there's no money left. So uh, who do you believe in this situation? It is, as my former tank commander would say, a sticky wicket. A sticky wicket. Isn't that a British term? I think so. I think it's like a cricket yeah, term. Yeah, cricket or, term. Yeah, cricket. Yeah, that little thing where you whack the balls through the thing. So it's a story that we'll certainly keep an eye on. I don't know if there will be any happy outcome to what started off as a heartwarming story. And unfortunately, that's the way it goes sometimes. Here's a heartwarming story for you, Jake. And this is on ConnectingBets.com. You can go and check it out. And of course, follow us on social media where we are at ConnectingBets. The Taliban says the founder of the Haqqani Network is dead. In Afghanistan. Oh. There's a story that'll warm your heart. Excuse me while I shed a tear. Jalaluddin Haqqani, 71 years old, founder of the much-feared Haqqani Network, has died after years of ill health. So it doesn't sound like he was killed by an airstrike or anything like that or any sort of operation, uh, but that he died after uh, having failing health. He'd been paralyzed for the past 10 years. This is an interesting thing, and when you look at Afghanistan specifically, and Iraq to a lesser extent, I think, but Afghanistan going back, I don't know, 30 years, 35 years at this point, we had many ties to people who were fighting against the Russians during the Cold War, essentially, in Afghanistan, including Osama bin Laden, including Zabihullah, uh, sorry, Jal Jalaluddin Haqqani. I was reading about someone else, uh, a spokesman for the Haqqani Network, uh, Zabihullah Mujahid, who told the Associated Press that he had died Monday inside of Afghanistan. At one point, President Reagan hailed him as a freedom fighter. Then he became a fighter against the United States. Of course, Russia, the Soviet Union at the time, were not looking to, to rid terrorism from Afghanistan. Afghanistan was a property of theirs, essentially, and they were occupiers that wanted to keep it for good. We have no interest in doing right. so. We're still there because, again, if that vacuum opens up in Afghanistan, we've seen what happened before when the Taliban were in charge in Afghanistan. And it's something that I've seen brought up uh, a little bit. And I've seen more and more as time goes on 
people equating Iraq and Afghanistan together and saying, like, you know, these two illegal wars. Whoa, 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 whoa. I can understand those people who think that Iraq was uh, something that shouldn't have happened, that we never should have gone into Iraq. There were no proven ties between bin Laden and the Iraqi government and weapons of mass destruction were not found. Actually, not true. They found chemical weapons, which qualifies as a weapon of mass destruction. They found quite a few of them. But anyway, Afghanistan, proven very clearly that the Taliban harbored Osama bin Laden, gave him safe haven, allowed him to plan and, and, and do everything to prepare for the September 11th attacks. So it's not in the same category as Iraq, not even close. It's also just a fascinating place because, again, we have involvement dating back to uh, the, the Mujahideen, the fighters who were going against the Soviet Union way back in the 70s and 80s. I mean, my God, there's a Rambo movie about it. Rambo 3 is set in Afghanistan, you know. It's, uh, it's one of those difficult situations. It's continued on for a very long time. But have you also noticed that as time goes on, people are kind of forgetting why we were in Afghanistan to begin with and just kind of putting it into the lumping it in with the uh, the illegal invasion of Iraq. Yeah, and that comes with time. I mean, it, it, it's the same way that people are still questioning why we went to Vietnam. And it's just like we have reasons at the time, and they're still valid reasons. And people don't realize that, you know, I, I think the problem came was the same thing with Iraq. We were promised a quick, decisive victory, and that hasn't really happened well, the military victory was very well, yeah. quick and decisive, but then you had insurgencies, and that and that's that's what's happened over in that part of the world. Again, because I think a lot of people who haven't uh, done their homework don't understand that there are, within Afghanistan, numerous tribes, numerous ethnicities, numerous languages. This nation of Afghanistan doesn't have the same meaning to the Afghan people that it does to the outside world. It's not like what being an American is, where we all have, well all most of us have this common thread that we kind of go by uh, where we all have that in common we are americans we believe in that that sense of country is something major to us in afghanistan it's really more about your tribe your village it goes down on smaller and smaller levels and in iraq you have uh, similar issues there particularly with the division with within islam between the sunni and shia muslims who do not like each other and not in the same way that like Catholics and Baptists have disagreements over the Bible and things like that. This is something that has been a, a bloody war that's gone on for years and years and years. Of course, Saddam Hussein was a Sunni. He was a member of the, the minority group within Iraq and brutally put down the Shia Muslims there, as well as the Kurds who were their own uh, separate identity up in the North of Afghanistan, who are kind of a, a Iraq. people without a country, uh, the north of Iraq, a people without a country. They're in Iraq and they're in Turkey and they're in Syria and no one really wants them there. So they're just kind of uh, fenced into their little area and not given the same rights as other people are. It's a very messy situation in Afghanistan, even more so than Iraq, because, again, you, you have people who don't even speak the same language within that country. You go up in the north, you go in the south, you got Dari, you got Pashtun. People who don't speak the same language living within the same country, it's almost like two separate countries broken down on language. And then when you go into those regions, you can break it down on an even smaller level and be like, all right, well, in the north, you have people who are of Tajik ancestry, Uzbek ancestry, uh, Persian ancestry, all living near each other and have hated each other for thousands of years. It's something that we we got involved in in Afghanistan because of the Taliban and, in, uh, and there's their sheltering of bin Laden. 
in Iraq for different reasons. But yeah, it's 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 very interesting to hear these stories coming out where, you know, the, the leader of the Haqqani network, who actually hadn't been leading the network, his son, Sirajuddin Haqqani, who is also the deputy head of the Taliban, has actually been leading the Haqqani network. So those two are very closely tied together, obviously. Um, you know, this is something that's raged on for, what, 17 years now? So he's 71 when he died. Let's go back. 54 when we first went into Afghanistan in 2001. It was around Thanksgiving of 2001 that we went in there. Of course, the Connie Network has been linked to some of the more audacious attacks in Afghanistan, according to the Associated Press. Massive bombings, killing people. I mean, they've killed more people in Afghanistan than we have, and not a good group of people. So when even the figurehead, even if he wasn't actively involved in the leadership because he'd been paralyzed for several years now, uh, the fact that he's gone, I'm okay with that. We've also got a big story of General Petraeus, someone that you don't hear as much from as you used to. I remember posting a photo of myself with General Petraeus in Afghanistan and uh, people commenting like, oh, that might be a future president in the United States. At a, at a certain time, he might have been, but... Yeah, uh, and some then, things happened. Yeah. Uh, there was that whole issue with the biographer who was getting all sorts of access to things uh, and the affair that he was having there. And uh, yeah, so there were... Uh, a lot of issues that led to him, uh, you know, not being considered anymore for public office. He was the head of, what was it, the FBI, I think it was? CIA. CIA, yeah. He was the director of uh, whichever one. I, my brain is not working. Jake says CIA. I'll go with him. He is now speaking out on the burn pit issue, saying that we have a sacred obligation to care for burn pit victims. He gave an exclusive interview to Fox News and said it's a sacred obligation. And by and large, our country does an extraordinary amount for our veterans and for those who are serving in uniform and for their families. This is an issue, though, where we have a sacred obligation and we need to meet that obligation. So this is something, again, we've talked about this issue ad nauseum. We've talked about it a ton here on the show is what I mean to say. Because everybody seems to be in agreement on it, but the movement on it hasn't been as swift as you would like to see. If everybody agrees on something, what's what's holding us back? Money. Money is part of it. Although the things that they're trying to do with the legislation, the burn pit legislation that's been uh, put forth recently, of course, you have the uh, bipartisan measures put forth by uh, Gabbard and Mass, two Army veterans. It seems that what they're wanting to do and what they're trying to do isn't going to cost a ton of money. So again, if it's not going to cost a ton of money, everybody agrees with it. What the heck is the problem? Where's the delay? What I've what I've learned when talk, speaking with USOs is th the danger comes when once VSOs. you open. V, what I say? USOs. Yeah, There's only v one USO, baby. Yeah, the VSOs is once you open up a presumption. It leaves you open to anyone and anyone can claim something. That's This is why it took, what, 30, 40 years to get Agent Orange presumptions in, and yeah. we're still dealing with it with Blue Water Navy. Yeah. And it's the only difference now is that we have this information age where we can get this information immediately knowing that, hey, this is bad stuff. We don't have to wait years and years for people to start dying before we realize that this was a problem. More than 150,000 active duty military and retirees and veterans have put their names on the burn pit registry in hopes that Congress and the VA are going to address their health issues. Thousands more have developed cancer, respiratory problems, and blood ailments, which they claim are tied to the burn pits. Here's what Petraeus had to say to Fox about the issue of burn pits while the wars were going on uh, at their height. Of course, Afghanistan's still going on. We still have some people in Iraq as well. 
Quote, we were worried about just getting enough water for our troops in the really hot summer. So the burn pits were kind of a secondary measure. It was the most efficient way, though clearly not the healthiest or best way for them to dispose of all sorts of stuff. Medical and human waste, chemicals, paint, metal, aluminum cans, munitions, unexploded ordnance, petroleum, lubricant products, plastics, rubber, wood, discarded food, anything that you could burn if it was doused with gasoline. Now, for those of you who don't understand what this was like, just imagine putting any one of those things into a fire and standing near where the smoke goes. You wouldn't want to do that. Put them all into that same fire, and you're absolutely not going to want to do that. So I think the politicians and the leaders of this country need to get together and address this issue directly. Everyone is in agreement on it. There is not an agreement on how to address it. That's something that needs to be fixed. And the VSOs, the American Legion, the VFW, IAVA, AMVETS, they're all working together, DAV, to try and get this push forward. So that's a good thing. Hey, speaking of the American Legion, we're going to talk to them coming up in just a little bit. Actually, we're going to talk to someone that they put us in touch with, retired Marine Lynn Louder. He's got a really great new initiative that's looking to get veterans as business owners by having them buy businesses from owners that are retiring and want to sell to veterans. We're going to talk to them about that in just a few minutes. And then later, Dr. Ryan Vega of the VA will give us the down low on what took place at the Innovation Summit and the amazing breakthroughs still taking place at the VA today. You're listening to The Morning Briefing, Wednesday edition. I'm Eric Dame. He's Jake Hughes, and we will be back right after this. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. back to the morning briefing on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is the slogan, and it's what we do. And we're doing it every day of the week. And why do we do it? It's because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform and just as importantly, knows what it's like to have taken it off. We know the struggles, we know the difficulties, and we're trying to make that transition easier on you. And make sure that that transition, which lasts for the rest of your life after you leave, is as smooth as it can possibly be. So check out ConnectingVets.com every day. And of course, be sure to follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps, served during the Vietnam War. He's a combat veteran himself, and now he is a veteran of working to help vets succeed in the business industry. He is Lynn Louder, who joins us this morning. Lynn, how are you today? I'm well, Eric. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, talked a little bit about your military service there. You obviously served in a, a different era than the veteran who's getting out today. Uh, do you think things have gotten better or stayed the same or maybe even gotten worse for veterans who are transitioning from the service compared to when you left? Well, overall, uh, I think they've gotten worse, uh, with particular emphasis on veterans having the opportunity to own their own business, so to speak. Uh, Post-World War II, 49% of our veterans ended up in business for themselves. Post-9-11, it's anywhere from 6 to 7% only. So there's been a significant retrograde that's gone on in terms of the small business opportunities here in America for our veterans. 
And it's not for a lack of those veterans wanting to do that or for a lack of programs working to help them out. We're going to talk about one of those uh, right here in just a moment, the Veterans Business Project that Lynn is the co-founder and co-CEO of. What do you think is behind that difference in the, the difficulty these days versus the difficulty back in the day of starting a business? Is it red tape? Is it that there are uh, so many large corporations? What do you think the main culprit is? It's... Uh actually comes down to one principal challenge, and that is access to capital for our veterans. In World War II, post-World War II, uh, with the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, that was what the original GI Bill was called. There were uh, three choices that veterans had. Choice one, get a degree, get a job. Choice two, get a trade, get a job. But also importantly, because the whole intent of this law was full employment, World War II veterans had a shot. If they wanted to buy a farm or business property, the Fed would be a loan guarantor. So it would be a loan from the community bank, but the Fed is a loan guarantor. A couple things have changed significantly now uh, since those days. Number one, uh, community banking has changed dramatically. Most community banks are owned by larger banks. It comes down to one thing for a veteran, and that is what's your credit score and what's your collateral. And the other part about it is uh, no no loan guarantors whatsoever. That uh, option has gone and has been uh, gone actually since the 50s. So long story short, veterans today have as much capability to be successful in a business of their own, but they cannot get access to capital. Simply said, very, very difficult for them to get a small business loan. Right. In a, in a time and place where our country, uh, we will lend tens of thousands of dollars to a teenager bound for college with no regard to credit score collateral for that person, but a Lance Corporal machine gunner in the Marine Corps, sorry, you've got a real challenge. Right. Yeah, there are some jobs in the military that it doesn't seem transition well to civilian life. However, there are things that veterans pick up no matter what their job was in the military that do transition well, like leadership, like responsibility, like, hell, showing up on time, where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be. There are a lot of veterans out there who would make for great employees or great business owners. And Lynn Lauder, Marine Corps veteran and co-CEO and co-founder of the Veterans Business Project, knows a little bit about that. Lynn, you are a member of the small business administration's advisory committee on veterans you have experience in the business world you're a lawyer so you know the legal aspects of it uh tell us a little bit about the veterans business project and what you're hoping to do through this program for veterans a few years back i had the opportunity to stand up a veterans program at the university of central missouri and i was impacted by the number of veterans that wanted to get in business for themselves so when I came back to the uh, Chicagoland area, I began to do some research uh, on how that all operated. The things that I told you before came nose to nose with the challenge that, okay, the reason why these veterans today, they're, they're as capable as any veterans ever, uh, for all the reasons you just said. Uh, they've got grit. They've got intelligence. They will show up on time, all those things, team players, integrity, got it all. But how are we going to get them 
access to capital so they can start their own business. So we jumped in and started a 501c3, originally called One Bet at a Time. Now we've been redesignated a veteran business project. The whole idea was to get access to capital for veterans. So we went after the GI Bill and uh, have been pushing for a case case study of a number of veterans uh, that can get grants from the SBA to go forward and really show uh, Capitol Hill, if you will, that the veterans have got what it takes. The whole focus there was to see if we could modify the GI Bill and get veterans access to capital from from that uh, GI Bill allotment. Second thing we did was we went after state loan guarantees at the state level, and uh, we got legislation passed in Illinois and recently in Missouri. So we are two states down and 48 states to go. We're finding that the, uh, the effort, I think, is much more fruitful at the state level. You're closer to the parties involved. Uh, you're closer to the need. You're closer to the impact of small business and communities. So uh, that's what we did on the legislative side. Now, during that process, we have had people come to us from time to time. Typically, it will be a baby boomer. And conversation will go something like this. Look, uh, my wife and I stood this uh, dry cleaning business up here years ago. It's done well by us and our family. Uh, we're coming to the point of retirement here, but our kids aren't interested. We thought we might be able to find a veteran who might be interested in taking that business over. Can you help us find one? And so over time, we've done some business matching. What we have now done with Veteran Business Project is to institutionalize that process. So we have a program that will match up veterans interested in purchasing an existing small business and small business owner operators who would be interested in showing their business to a veteran with the prospect of the veteran buying their business. We think this is a winning template and uh, we're gonna be pushing it all across America. It really is something that's kind of fascinating and something that uh, is outside the box thinking. I mean, when we think about veteran business owners, we may think about the entrepreneurs who start their own business. This is coming at it from a, a totally different perspective. Where did the idea for this uh, originate from? Was it was it just an aha moment where there was some sort of a connection between a retiring business owner and a veteran? Or is it something that uh, that we're still waiting to see happen? Well, actually... Uh it was a gradual, I'd say, evolution in thinking. We began to see this coming to us more frequently. Uh, our team, we, have, we are a team, by the way, of five uh, volunteers, unpaid. We have been footing our own bill in this. So we got some sharp people, creative. So we're sitting around thinking about this, and it seemed to us that just what you said, there was a, uh, an opportunity here that really hasn't been addressed. The notion is, if it's a challenge, and it is, for veterans to come up with financing so they can buy their own business, a startup is one thing. But how about an existing small business that has tax returns, that has P&Ls, revenue flow, that is uh, cash positive and stable, might that be a better opportunity 
for the veteran to get financing. And the truth is, yes, it is. The, uh, in some cases, uh, these small business owner operators can work out financing, financing internally with the veteran. In some cases, business owner operators uh, are willing to take back a subordinated note, which can be considered collateral by the bank. So we, uh, it was a gradual evolution, but we began to see it as a trend, and we thought we could create a movement in America. We've got baby boomers who, are, who want to move on now and into retirement, and we've got a number of sharp veterans that would be tremendous in small business uh, ownership and operating. So really, that's, uh, that's how we came upon this whole concept. And that concept is the Veterans Business Project. Lynn Louder, Marine Corps veteran, is the co-CEO and co-founder of the Veterans Business Project. Lynn, if a veteran is out there and is either, uh, you know, on either side of this equation, maybe they're a a business owner who's looking to retire or there's someone who's thinking, hey, this sounds great. I'd like to run a business, especially one that's already got that foundation laid, as you were just saying. How do they go about getting in touch with the Veterans Business Project and finding out if there's some way that you can help uh, facilitate that for them? Two ways. Uh, we have a web a web page. It's www.veteranbusinessproject.org. You go to the website and they can register there and uh, for contact information, or they can call me directly. I can give you that number. That's six three zero two 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 five one five five. We'll be glad to help them out. And is there a particular veteran who this program is is for? Is there some uh, you know some qualifications that they should have, or something that they need to have on their side before heading into some sort of arrangement like this, like taking over a business? Who is the perfect uh, person to apply for your assistance? Well, in the two states for their loan guarantees, let me just give you an example of that. And we put these due diligence steps in place, frankly to make bankers more comfortable because the World War II people, they just jumped in and made it happen. Uh, So in the states of Missouri and Illinois, what they ask is uh, that the veteran would be a resident of that state, uh, utterly discharged, that they would have taken and approved boots the business curriculum, that they would have a business plan, that they would shark tank that plan to a committee, and then go on ahead and apply for their... uh, their loan guarantee, and they get a mentor after that. In, in states where the loan guarantee program does not exist currently, what I would strongly recommend is that they take a well-reputed boost of business curriculum, have a business plan, and be ready to present it. I think those are two critical uh, items that, that they can take advantage of to simply show that they're well-prepared. The more you know about the type of business you're getting into, by way of homework before you even uh, move into seeing if you could apply for a loan, the better off it is. That's just smart uh, business planning. Know, know as much about your prospective business as you can before you, before you move forward. Lynn, when it comes to the VSOs, I know you're an American Legion member, a proud Legionnaire yourself. Is there also something that the, the VSOs can do to help put them in touch with those right programs and those right first steps in getting on the, on the road to becoming business owners? Well, I know, for one, uh, there's the Veterans Business Opportunities Centers. They're all around the country. 
and they are they've been stood up by the SBA as you mentioned earlier I'm on the SBA's advisory committee for veterans affairs so we monitor these carefully uh, the VBOC program as it's called Veterans Business Opportunity Center they can go there and they can take a boots to business curriculum there are mentors and there are coaches and it's all for free uh, the Syracuse EBV program is a is an excellent program and then there's Bunker Labs out of Chicago and they've satellited out to a number of different locations in America but they also have a, a good program called Bunker in a Box which you can access right off your computer it's internet based there are a lot of options out there and the newest one of the newest ones I should say is the Veterans Business Project which again is an initiative that aims to connect veterans who want to get into business with retiring business owners who want to sell their businesses to veterans. It's a really interesting project and I'm glad that we've been able to speak to Lynn Louder, United States Marine Corps veteran about it here on the Morning Briefing. Lynn, thank you so much for your time and thank you once again for continuing to serve the veteran community. Uh, you know, all these years later after your service, you're still working to get things done for vets and, and it doesn't go unnoticed. We all appreciate it. You're welcome, Eric. Thanks for having us on. And our thanks to the American Legion for setting up that interview with Lynn Louder. Of course, we speak to the American Legion or someone affiliated with a program that they believe in every Wednesday morning here on the morning briefing. And Jake, the Veteran Business Project there, it's pretty fascinating idea. Just as I said, that outside the box thinking veterans are many times struggling to to find their place in the world when they get out. Yeah, you can find uh, a job of some sort. I mean, unemployment's at all time lows right now. So you don't want to go, though, and work, uh, you know, serving food to people or cleaning tables or something like that. Even if there isn't a direct transition, as Lim was saying, to like from infantry. As we were talking with Johnny Burns from Walk of America, he's, he's an, uh, an English veteran who was uh, an infantry member and said there's no real job for, that, that correlates to it outside of the military. That's where a lot of his struggles uh, began. In this case, though, and in many cases, if you served in the military, you come out with certain things that you might not think of that will be beneficial to you in business, like... As I said during the interview with Lynn, your ability to be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be, which having gone through college with some of these youngsters, boy, that's a big one. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people like the first day of class walking in 20 minutes late with a, a Starbucks cup in your hand. Like, really? You, you thought getting the getting that coffee was more important than getting here on time to get your education? Huh. All right. I was always early so I could see you know, who was coming in, who was going out, all that good stuff. What do you think about the idea? of the Veteran Business Project, which is essentially them, veterans being able to purchase established businesses from owners who are looking to retire, thereby kind of getting past that initial live or die phase that many businesses go through, which is oftentimes the biggest hurdle for an entrepreneur and business owner. Well, it's ingenious because when you think about it, like you said, the hardest part about getting a business is that initial stage of you put your heart and soul into something and you put it out there and you just got to see if it floats or if it sinks. With an established business, you get to move past that and you're able to get to the nitty gritty and the details of running a business. And so yeah. it's really, like I said, it's ingenious. For every grunt style, ranger up, nine line, go through your America bourbon, go through your list of veteran-owned businesses that you know about that have been huge successes, bottle breacher with Eli Crane. 
for every one of them that makes it, there are several that you never heard about, that you never knew about, that may have been a good idea. But again, as Lynn said, coming by capital, coming by the money to invest in those businesses is harder and harder these days. This project gives you a leg up when you're going to get a loan, essentially, to start a business because you're not really starting a business. You're taking over a business that has books. It's proven to be successful. Now, again, it's not going to be uh, some garbage business that you're going to be buying. Right. Not, and not specifically saying the garbage business, which, as we learned a little while ago from Daniel Sharp, the founder of Pop Smoke, uh, who uh, owns a franchise of J-Dog Junk Removal, the garbage business is good. Always going to be garbage. Always going to need people to take it away. You're not going to be buying a bad business. You're going to be buying something that's a proven success, and it makes it less of a risk for the banks that provide those loans. So it, it just it makes sense on so many levels. And again, in entrepreneurship, what you want to find is a space where no one exists that you can come into take over and be the first. And then maybe some people can follow in your footsteps. You know? I mean, yeah, okay, when we talk about Ranger Up, Grunt Style, Nine Line, there are plenty of apparel companies out there, but there weren't that many that were doing the veteran-aimed and patriotic T-shirt and, and gear route. They've kind of gone in there. Now it's difficult to break into that one now because they've been so successful and they're so darn good at it and have gotten so big, it's going to be harder for you to break in. So you got to find that other space, which is kind of what the Veteran Business Project has done in finding this, finding the the other avenue of having veterans purchase businesses that are already established. Yeah, it's great for veterans because they can, like you said, come into this business that's already running and so they can bust their chops on that. But at the same time, it's good for businesses because then they get, they gain the, the veteran-owned title, which in itself is very attractive to a lot of people. They want to support veteran-owned businesses and things like that. So it's good for business. It's good for the veterans. It's good for everybody. And it reminds me, again, of Daniel Sharp. He's best known as the Marine Corps veteran who founded Pop Smoke, made the fake news story about uh, the Marine being pulled over at Taco Bell and seducing the two police officers. <laughs> that's what you know Daniel Sharp for, but that's just a hobby, really. His half million Facebook followers and thousands on Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff, that's just a hobby. His real day job is he owns a franchise of a garbage removal thing. And what he said in the interview that we did that sticks out to me and has always remained in my mind is, franchising, and in this case, taking over a business through the Veteran Business Project, uh, purchasing it from someone who's retiring, is a good fit for veterans. Because if you think back to when you were in the military, Jake, when you arrived to your first command after you went through training to be a tanker, right? What was right. your first command after that? Uh, it was 1st Armored Division at Fort Riley, Kansas. When you got there, was everybody else just getting there for the first time and just starting up and basically like learning how to you know, purchase a tank and fix a tank and do all that stuff? Nope. There were about six of us that went from basic training straight to there, and we were the FNGs, and it was god-awful horrible. But there were people who were there who knew what they were doing yes. to show you the ropes. Because whatever training you'd gone through at basic and, and anything after that in between the two... You didn't know everything that you needed to know. There was already an infrastructure there. And even if you had just gone through the training and gotten to that location with a whole crew, if your whole crew had just showed up, the location, the unit already existed, the infrastructure was in place, and you just had to operate within that infrastructure, right? Right. That's how it is at every command. When I showed up to the USS Saipan in 2001 after leaving Keflavik, Iceland, there was a crew there. 
the the ship was in place. All I had to do was do my job within that ship, take over the public affairs office that already uh, was was functioning properly. Well, I don't know if it was functioning properly when I got there. <laughs> I hope it was when I left, but yeah, it was kind of a kind of a messy situation when I got there. Um, but it it, it kind of makes sense in this way that in the military you are trained to show up, you have your skills, you know how to operate, you get there, the infrastructure's in place, you're ready to hit the ground running. You didn't have to build the ship. You didn't have to, when I got to my first duty station, Naval Media Center, Keflavik, Iceland, I didn't have to build a TV and radio studio. They were already there. That's kind of what the Veteran Business Project is is aiming at. And it's, as you said, rather ingenious. It makes so much sense. You wonder why someone didn't do this earlier. Well, someone didn't, but they are now. And Lynn Lauder is the co-founder and co-CEO of Veteran Business Project. Their website, again, the number one vetatatime.org. One vetatatime.org, and it's the number one, not O-N-E at the beginning. Quick rapid-fire question for you, Jake, putting you on the spot. If you could take over a business, what business do you think Jake Hughes would be best at being the new owner of? Hmm. Probably something like GameStop or a music label. Here's the thing, Jake. GameStops are going out of business left. Yeah, I know. I know. Music labels. You're picking dying industries. Everybody's downloading their music online. All these famous new rappers with the face tattoos. Apparently, there's something going on online with uh, one of them and uh, Eminem having a battle that I could not care less about. I've heard about it. Music labels are going the way of the dodo. So let's re-ask the question. A a business that you think could be a success going forward that you would want to be the owner of? Uh, Probably... I, I don't know. That's a tough. That's a difficult question because it's not just what do I like doing. It's what could you do as a what could you do as a job and what you have the business savvy to do. And I right. honestly, I don't, I can't think of off the top of my head of something I would have the the passion for other than a GameStop or okay, yeah. a music label. Well, maybe you could start like your, your own independent video game store where you do something that the other places don't do. I mean, you're, you're, you know a lot about games. You could probably come up with some angle that would get people in there because there are some things, some uh, stand-up box stores, as they're called or whatever, that are succeeding. And I think of, uh, thinking of games, Wizards of the Coast, you know, those guys do like Magic the Gathering and all those different games. Yeah. You need them to be able to, to have a place to go and meet new people and do those things. There are ways to do it. And... If you have that idea, but there's already a business in place, that infrastructure is already there, like GameStop, for your example, a bad example, I think, but uh, nonetheless, uh, yeah, yeah, Jake's yeah. choice, it's there for you, and one vet at, or, sorry, onevetatatime.org is the website. The Veteran Business Project is working with the Small Business Administration, Bunker Labs, Groupon, all sorts of things. Uh, really, I think it's good, a good possibility for someone who wants to be the boss but may not have that billion-dollar idea. Remember, that billion-dollar idea may turn into a cost-you-a-couple-thousand-dollar idea more than anything. Yeah. You're listening to The Morning Briefing. We'll be right back with Ryan Vega, doctor at the VA, talking to us about the innovation experience at recent concluded and the innovation that's always going to be going on over at the VA. Morning Briefing, back after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. 
Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan, and it's what we do. And I'm going to tell you why we do it. It's because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform and to have taken it off that very last time. So each and every day, that team of veterans here at Connecting Vets is working to make sure that you have the information you need on benefits, on education, on employment, on entertainment, on everything that you could possibly want. It's all right there. ConnectingVets.com is the website, and we are at Connecting Vets on all social media. Our next guest is a member of, well, the organization that's helping more veterans than any other. I'm, of course, speaking of the Department of Veterans Affairs. He is Dr. Ryan Vega, the Diffusion of Excellence Lead and the Hospital Attending Physician at the Richmond VA VA Medical Center. Dr. Vega, how are you doing this morning? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure. Now, first, let's talk about how you came to be part of the VA. What led you to want to join the VA team? You know, it's an interesting question because I, I, cha- I trained at VA medical centers during my residency, and it wasn't actually until I had an opportunity. It was really just a fortuitous opportunity. I wasn't sort of hand-selected to do this role. There was just nobody else that wanted to go into it at the time. But the VA had a program called Chief Resident for Quality and Safety. And, you know, I was at the end of my third year. This opportunity opened itself up to continue some training. And I said, this sounds like an exciting opportunity. I'll take it. And so I spent a year really looking at quality and safety operations at the Richmond VA Medical Center. And I think it was during that time that that I really was exposed to some of the amazing work that was going on, not just locally, but across the country. I also really fell in love with taking care of veterans. I had the opportunity to be an attending physician during that year and to really sort of uh, experience what it was like to be uh, directly providing patient care to predominantly veterans. Uh, my ambulatory primary care clinic when I was a resident was over at the, our academic affiliate. So I really only had a limited amount of experience of interacting with veterans coming in and out of the system. And so, you know, I really just fell in love with, with the mission of the VA. I fell in love with the veterans. I, you know, I can tell you my favorite memories of, of being an attending physician or sitting at the bedside and just listening to some of the World War II vets tell their stories. Just absolutely, you know, it's an honor really to take care of those individuals. And, and, and that's really, I think, how I fell in love with the VA. And it's only grown from there. You know, we talk about the fact that there are quite a few vacancies and some of the most important vacancies at the VA are in the medical profession. It sounds like you really love your job. How do you think we let more physicians and and doctors and specialists know about how great and fulfilling it can be to work for the VA? How do you think we address all those vacancies? Yeah, you know, I think it's a it's a great question because the VA touches so much of graduate medical education across the country. They have such an important role in the educational mission. And, and I can tell you locally at Richmond, we have seen over the past five years a surge of providers who we always sort of said they're going to go be a hospitalist at the academic affiliate in the private sector are competing now to get those coveted positions at, at the Richmond VA Medical Center because they really want to work there. And so I think it comes really down to two things. I think the more we open up opportunities like the Chief Resident for Quality and Safety, like some of the advanced fellowships that the Office of Academic Affiliation has, and we expose providers really more to some of the amazing opportunities across the country, I think we'll start to see sort of a gravitational pull to doing that mission-centric work. And I think really it has to sort of start in the residency programs when the providers are sort of early on in their training, really introducing them and and really thinking about 
what is the next generation of physicians that we want both in the VA and in healthcare look like? And, and VA plays a really important role in that. And so uh, I think I look at my own journey. I really fell in love with the VA through that opportunity. And I, I think we see programs like this growing. We just have to get them out there and, and make sure that every uh, physician in training knows about the amazing work going on in the VA and, and how they can be a part of it. I think one of the other things that can draw people to the VA, and, and you kind of mentioned it there, but the fact that the VA has been at the forefront of innovation in so many ways over the years. I mean, we're talking about uh, the development of the nicotine patch, the first pacemaker, the first liver transplant. The list of innovation at the VA is incredibly long, and it's a list that's going to grow longer as time goes on. And a great example of that, as I understand it, is the innovation experience that was recently held that you were at. Tell me, what did you uh, take away from that event? and what took place there? It was an absolutely amazing event. I, I took away so much. I, you know, I think one of the, the things that still humbles me every time I'm around some of these frontline innovators, the absolutely amazing work that's going on across the country uh, is truly, I think, in some cases, revolutionary. One of the things we saw yesterday at an event called the IE Talks, it was sort of these TED Talk storytellings. There was a physician by the name of Beth Ripley who brought a 3D printed mandible and is actually working right now with several different industry partners to at least what they are preparing to do is to 3D print the first bone. And their plan is in three years, they are going to reconstruct bone to use for, op- you know, for surgical operations and, and sort of interventions. And so, um, I mean, this isn't, you know, she, she ended her talk and she said, this isn't science fiction. This is real medicine. This is world-class healthcare happening in the VA. And you sort of look at that and you say, you know, how do I be a part of that, right? I mean, you get excited and you realize that some of these things are happening, but they're happening in VA. And, and you, you pointed to this, right? The cardiac implantable defibrillator, the nicotine patch, the first liver transplant. Uh, one of the VA employee nurses who was receiving chemotherapy and said, you know what? There's probably a better way to deliver medication, creating the bar scan coding for medication delivery. Some of the most amazing and, and transforming interventions and innovations have happened in the VA. And I think that's really what I took away from it is that it's not stopping. It's only accelerating. And I think VA is going to be at the forefront of truly integrating clinical uh, innovation and the adoption and the spread of it into healthcare, which is an area where we as healthcare has struggled, uh, not just in America, but across the world. It, uh, our keynote speaker on Tuesday, Dr. Toby Crossgrove, who's the former CEO of, of Cleveland Clinic, he talked directly about the time it takes for sort of evidence-based practices and in these truly reforming clinical innovations to consistently reach patients is about 13 years. That's just too long. And so I think what we saw over the past couple of days was just this excitement, this energy, this momentum that's building uh, sort of sometimes groundbreaking clinical innovations that truly could transform care delivery. And it's all happening in the VA. One of the things that I understand, and we're speaking with Dr. Ryan Vega, the Diffusion of Excellence lead at the VA, is also a hospital and attending physician at the Richmond, Virginia VA Medical Center, that part of the thing of this innovation experience is bringing the programs and things that have worked on a local level and seeing if they might be something that's implementable on a national level. Was there anything that stuck out as far as the programs that affect the care for patients at the VA that's been a success, smashing success at any local level that you think we might see soon on the national level? Yeah, we've seen a couple of practices that really are starting to gain momentum. 
And I think you really sort of touched on an important point. It's the part of the Diffusion of Excellence initiative was the realization that there are fantastic programs going all over across the country. But it's how do you find each individual one, give those an opportunity to be replicated or grow, and see if they truly do work across multiple different centers. Instead of the idea of it being so forced top-down, everyone's going to follow this path, it's sort of saying, you found something that works really great. Now let's test it. Let's see what happens at a couple of other centers. There's two practices that I, I'll call attention to because I think they're, they're truly doing some amazing work. One of the practices is called HAPPEN. Shannon Monroe is a nurse researcher in the VA. Her and her team have discovered that something as simple as brushing teeth. Now she's very humble and says that's as simple it is. It's a little bit more complex. But it's brushing teeth. It's this oral care bundle can actually reduce non-ventilator-associated hospital-acquired pneumonia. Now, there was a lot of focus over the past 10 years on hospital-acquired pneumonias as they're related to patients being on a ventilator. She's finding out that a lot more of them are caused by non-ventilator-associated. At a couple of different medical centers where she's put this out, they've seen a 90% reduction in these hospital-acquired pneumonias. What's really remarkable about this Certainly, there's cost avoidance, and we can focus on all that. But if you look at the data and you sort of extrapolate it, it's about 21 lives they have saved by this sort of spreading across the multiple hospital sites and where it's going. So I think we're going to see this practice start moving across the country. It's already gaining recognition by the CDC, American Hospital Association. It's been featured in various different media outlets. So that's, I think, just one example uh, of a practice that really, really worked, had an amazing impact, and is now spreading. The second one, I think, is one that sort of hits home to all of us, and it's a practice called the rapid availability of intranasal naloxone. And the opiate epidemic is not just affecting veterans. It's affecting everyone, and it's really not sort of selecting who it impacts. I have people in, in, in my life that I've known that have been affected by it. And I think if you asked everyone, they probably know somebody who's been impacted by it. And so what we're seeing is that by distributing the drug, the intranasal naloxone drug, which is the reversal agent, by distributing it both in our AED cabinets, by having some of our police, since they're at hospitals on medical campuses, carry it, and also to give it to patients and instruct them and their families about it, that we're actually seeing reversals. And so one of the things that we've done is sort of tracked it at a couple of different sites. They've already reported over 128 reversals. I mean, that's just real impact. And so we're going to see a practice like that, I think, spread quite rapidly over the next coming months. That's the kind of thing that is so good to hear. And, you know, for all the problems that we hear about with the VA, very few of them are related to the uh, research and development and the medical care. It mostly seems to be issues more on the, uh, you know, on the, uh, the paperwork side, the administration side. How confident are you that the VA will continue to stay at the forefront of innovation? I know this is an annual event. It doesn't seem like the, uh, the department's willing to rest on its laurels to me, but from an insider's perspective, do you think it's just going to keep getting more and more innovative as time goes on? Without question. I, I think this has been sort of a steep culture of the, of the VA. It's always been an innovative organization. It's always been at the forefront. You know, and, and I'm sort of reminded of a comment you made in the introductory segment. You sort of said, I'm going to tell you why. You talked about why we do what we do here. And, and that's really something we focused on in the past couple of months is really getting the message out both to all the frontline VHA staff and really to everyone else. Why do we innovate? Why are we continuously innovating in the VA? And why do I believe 
so strongly that we will continue to be at the forefront of innovation and, and clinical innovation and healthcare delivery over the next decades to come. And it's really because it's about one single thing, veterans. And I, you know, we heard this yesterday from a number of the different innovators. They get up every day, they go to work with one single North Star, one single mission, and that's to change and save the lives of veterans. And there's nothing else that sort of gets in the way of that. And I think when people sort of focus on that, when an organization can focus on that sole mission that everyone can rally around, that's an incredibly powerful force. So I'm confident that this is only going to grow. It's been absolutely amazing to see the leadership support that we have to do this work, uh, to continue to invest in the front lines. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm just very excited for what the future has to hold for us. We're speaking with Dr. Ryan Vega, the Diffusion of Excellence Lead at the Department of Veterans Affairs, also a hospital and attending physician at the Richmond, Virginia VA Medical Center. Uh, a term that you used in there about, you know, making sure that lives are saved and changed, there's actually an initiative called Changing Lives, Saving Lives, as I understand. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this is an initiative. It's more of a, a, a campaign to do a couple of things, call to action, raise awareness. This campaign was launched yesterday at the VHA Innovation Experience. And really, it was about that mission-driven innovation. We went around and talked to frontline innovators and, and asked them, why do you innovate? What drives you to get up and do this work? Because a lot of these are clinicians, they're nurses, they're pharmacists, they're frontline administrative staff, and this is extra work for them. They're not getting paid to do this. It's probably taking a lot more time for them to, to do some of the work on the side. And, and it's a big, big organization. So sometimes it's hard to connect to the right people. So what's driving them? Right? It was really about asking them, what is their why? Why are they doing this? And it really just continued to be the same answer. It was, uh, if you ask me why, it's, I do this because I am driven by the mission. I'm committed to serving veterans. And I think that is a powerful message that we need to get out because one of the things we see is that there is a slow groundswell of participation from the front line. But sometimes people can sort of feel small. They're at a small VA medical center. They may not be connected to a big urban city or have access to a large academic affiliate. And they say, yeah, I'm just not able to do what these individuals are doing. And so I think it's really a call to action to say, yes, you can. We have the resources to help you do that. And, and don't lose sight of the mission. Don't lose sight of why everyone is doing this. And it's not easy. You know, I think that was one of the things that Toby Cosgrove had told the audience in the keynote is he said, this work is hard. It's really hard. And he almost joked, he said, you know, when you bring innovation to the market in healthcare, they're not going to want it. They're going to resist. And so this is hard work. And so I think as much as it is about, uh, you know, raising awareness of the work going on, it's really that call to action to say, it's going to be hard, but we're all in it together, and our mission is absolutely incredible, and it's to change and save the lives of veterans. And so I think that um, you know, it was an important part for us to get there to really answer that why and really excited to sort of start moving that out and really continue to build this groundswell of momentum we have. If people want to find out about the campaigns like Changing Lives, Saving Lives, about the innovation that's taking place at the VA in general uh, around the nation, where do they go and how would you recommend they do so? There's a couple of different ways. We've got a pretty heavy social media presence that I think has, as you'll see a lot of pick up over the last couple of days. But if you look for or even search for things such as VHA Innovation Experience or VHA Innovation, You'll find a couple of different websites. We've got some Medium blogs out there. 
Obviously, we have sort of an active handle in Twitter and, and Facebook, but also just looking to the organization. So going to the VA website, looking under organizational excellence, or looking under sort of the old, we called it the VA Center for Innovation, but that has changed a little bit. Um, so sort of looking throughout the agency's website and even looking at some of our social media presence, you can find access to more of these amazing stories. Uh, we try to feature podcast as well, which talks about three or four different impactful practices that are thematic going on across the country. So we're really trying to get the message out there in a couple of different mediums. And, and I think that, you know, we hope to try to continue to spread the message. Um, but I think, you know, the best thing is just go search for it. Um, and, and you'll find hopefully what you're looking for. And if you can't go to the VA website or contact us, uh, there's a couple of email addresses that we'd be happy to put out there. Um, but one of them is VA diffusion. If you contact that email address, we'll get back to you and we'll point you in the right direction. We've been speaking with Dr. Ryan Vega, the Diffusion of Excellence lead and a hospital attending physician at the Richmond, Virginia VA Medical Center about the recent innovation experience and so much more that's taking place over at the VA. Dr. Vega, I want to thank you for your time. More importantly, I want to thank you from the work that you and your compatriots over there in the medical field at the VA are doing each and every day to change and save veterans' lives. Thank you truly from the bottom of my heart for the work that you do. Well, listen, it's really been a pleasure being with you this morning, and I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to be on and sort of talk about the work we're doing. We're very passionate about it, and I think the more opportunity we have to get the word out, uh, the more this momentum will continue to grow. So from, from all my colleagues, I really appreciate you giving us this opportunity. You know, Jake, it's nice to hear about the positive things taking place over at the VA. For all the negative that we hear, it's easy to forget that the VA has been at the forefront of medical innovation for decades, decades, as long as they've been in existence, the VA has been doing amazing things. I mean, we're talking the nicotine patch, the pacemaker, breakthroughs and prosthetics. Why do you think it is that we forget about all the innovation that's happened over there? It's the same reason why every time you turn on the news, there's something horrible, and that's when things are working well, it doesn't make news. It's not uh, it's it's not newsworthy because people want sensationalistic stuff. They want to hear about long wait times and quote-unquote death panels and all this other stuff. They don't want to hear about how the VA is running how it should, and it's making these great medical breakthroughs. Guy walking down the street doing everything he's supposed to, that doesn't make news. Guy running down the street naked with his hair on fire, that's the front page of the news. I mean, that's essentially what it comes down to. But the fact that the VA brings people together to discuss not just those huge breakthroughs like we just talked about, like the prosthetics breakthroughs and things like that, but to bring in these programs that have been initiated and tested out on the local level and see how they might work on a broader, wider scale, that's huge. And that's something I'd like to see even more of within the VA. I mean, it's great that they do it now. Once a year, they get together for this innovation experience. Of course, it's not like they're not talking to each other the rest of the year. They are talking to each other quite a bit on these things. Uh, it's, It's great to see that they get together and do this and that something that's working in Topeka, Kansas, might also work in Los Angeles, might also work in Gulfport, Mississippi. I mean, how happy are you that the VA is not just making these innovations and starting these new programs, but then also making sure that it gets shared between them, which, as we've seen with government organizations, doesn't always happen. Well, that intercommunication is really important because that's how you share things around. I mean, that's how one breakthrough goes from one place to another, and it... It's good because we hear a lot about how communication is so poor at the VA, like transferring medical records and stuff, and they're working on that. So this is very 
heartening. Whatever. What's the opposite of disheartening? Heartening. Yeah. I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it sounds good. That's what's important. It's very heartening to see them uh, working so closely together. It certainly is. And it's one of those things that, again, you hear all of the nonsense coming out of people just railing against the VA. Some of it's nonsense. Some of it's very valid. In fact, we're going to be talking to an organization who has some questions about the, the gaps at the VA that I actually talked to Dr. Vega about where there are 40,000 plus job vacancies over there. Well, it turns out that also the VA has added jobs in that time. So if you've added 5,000 jobs and there are still 40,000, why did you add 5,000 jobs if you still have 40,000 jobs to fill? That goes more to, as we always say, the bureaucratic aspect of the VA, the fact that it is a government department. Is that stuff ever going to be perfect? No, the perfect government doesn't exist, never has. We're about as close to it as has ever been seen. But there are still these significant issues. The other takeaway from that interview with Dr. Vega for me is, boy, is he just happy and energetic about helping veterans and about working in the veteran space. I mean, this is a guy, a doctor who kind of came up through the VA system. It's where he got a lot of his training and then decided that he wanted to stay there. There may have been more money elsewhere. There may have been more glory elsewhere. He stayed there to do that. And there are a lot of people, professionals working in the VA, particularly on the medical side, who fall into that same category as him, which, man, that's you want to talk about heartening. The fact that we've got bright minds like Dr. Vega who are just ready and raring to go and want to be there. He's not there because it's his last resort opportunity. He chose to be there from the start, which is just huge to me. Yeah, and that's the that's the most the struggle the VA has is trying to find people that want to be there because, like you said, there's not as much glory, there's not as much money because it's a government job, but it's important for people because you're helping veterans, you're helping a class of citizen that has sacrificed so much for our country and so you attract the kind of people that want to give back it's kind of like what we're doing here a little bit at connectingvets.com there are other places that i could probably go and make a little bit more money than i'm making here but we are doing something that i enjoy doing i like coming in here and telling these stories i like talking to people like dr vega like lynn louder earlier in the show like all of our guests and all the vsos that we get to shine a light on or help shine a light on it's just fantastic and something that uh, again, it kind of makes up for the fact that you might not uh, get paid as highly or get as much <laughs> of the uh, of the glory as you would if you were working elsewhere, you know? Yeah, you're right. And but it's important to keep perspective because money isn't everything. And well, okay, let me let me uh, clarify here. Money is a lot and money helps, but at the same time, I mean, you have to do something you enjoy doing. You have to do something that means something. Like I'm the kind of person I can't just work a soulless job for a lot of money. I got to have some purpose. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. There's a, there's a money amount that I could do a soulless job for. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if you threw enough money at me, I'd be like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll do that. I mean, there's because then there's a lot of good that you can do with that money. So there's a balance to it. But for doctors, I mean, there are ways that you can make a killing out there. Think about how many wonderful doctors who could have been changing lives and saving lives are instead doing like lip injections and stuff <laughs> like that and cosmetic <laughs> surgery. People with amazing hands that have the ability to fix a heart are instead, you know, like uh, making making you uh, have the duck lips a little bit better on your Instagram posts yeah. and things you could, like that. You could be fixing the heart. Instead, you're fixing the... The, the mammary glands, we'll say. Oh, wow. Yeah, you went there. <laughs> You're listening to The Morning Briefing here on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com as we come to an end on our Wednesday show. 
Want to remind you to check out ConnectingVets.com on a daily basis. It's got all the info that you need to live your best veteran's life. It's got great stuff like organizations that are out there to help you. It's got interviews with successful veterans, veterans who have overcome adversary, people that may be able to offer a bit of a, a blueprint or a roadmap for you to get to where you want to be. And our team of veterans is working each and every day to keep adding more and more to what's on the site. And then, of course, you've also got us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And Jake, what was your latest story that went up there, just for uh, just for an example for the folks? Uh, last story I did was one on... Uh uh, the Marine Corps, quote unquote, officially, finally banning revenge porn and uh, any sort of racial supremacy. Wow. Yeah. Has to be official. I guess you got to have the rules on the books to be able to truly hammer people when something does yeah, go wrong. One of those things that you wouldn't think needs saying, but they had to say it. Yeah. Well, that does happen, unfortunately. And also happening, unfortunately, the end of this show. This Wednesday edition of The Morning Briefing has been a treat. And we'll be back tomorrow on Thursday with a whole lot more great new good information for you. On behalf of myself and Jake Hughes, we'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Connecting Vets. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.